Hello and welcome to Truth and Journalism, a radio broadcast dedicated to applying the Word of God to current events. Well, today on Truth and Journalism, we're going to talk about nuclear war. Our story comes from Julian Bolger for the UK Guardian, and it has been heavily edited for length. It's a very good article, and I highly recommend reading it in its entirety. It is entitled, Poland Suggests Hosting U.S. Nuclear Weapons Amid Growing Fears of Putin's Threats. Poland says that it has asked the United States to have weapons based in its territory amid growing fears that Vladimir Putin could resort to using nuclear arms in Ukraine to stave off a rout of his invading army. The request from the Polish president, Andrzej Duda, is widely seen as symbolic, as moving nuclear warheads closer to Russia would make them more vulnerable and less militarily useful, according to experts. Furthermore, the White House has said it has not received such a request. We are not aware of this issue being raised and would refer you to the government of Poland, a U.S. official said. Duda's announcement appears to be the latest example of nuclear signaling as the U.S. and its allies seek to deter Putin from the first nuclear use in battle since 1945 while preparing potential responses if deterrence fails that would have maximum punitive impact while containing the risk of escalation to all-out nuclear war. Previous war games conducted by U.S. administrators have shown that it is a fine and fuzzy line to tread, given the uncertainty over Putin's state of mind and his record of giant miscalculations over Ukraine. Duda's remarks on basing nuclear weapons followed changes in the constitution of neighboring Belarus that would allow Russian nuclear weapons to be based on its territory. Poland has raised the issue at a time when the prospect of nuclear weapons use is higher than at any time since the Cold War, and arguably since the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago this month. Putin has threatened to use all means at his disposal to defend Russian territory, at the same time as declaring the annexation of four more Ukrainian regions. He made the declaration as Russian troops were in retreat in the face of a Ukrainian counteroffensive. The White House has warned of catastrophic consequences if Putin did resort to using nuclear weapons, but did not specify what those would be. It is said it has warned Russian officials privately, but it is not clear how much more specific those warnings have been. One possible response would be a U.S.-led NATO conventional strike on Russian forces inside Ukraine, and even the sinking of Russia's Black Sea fleet. In reality, NATO is unlikely to be part of any response as it would require agreement by its 30 members. More likely, it would involve Washington and its closest allies like the UK. There are ongoing discussions and have been for a while about various scenarios and how we might react, an official in Washington said. U.S. European Command is also doing scenario planning, the official said, adding that there is no concrete set of actions planned. The dilemma facing the military planners is how to act in such a way that Putin does not benefit militarily from using nuclear weapons, but not so forcefully that escalation spins out of control and leads inexorably to nuclear war between NATO and Russia. Much would depend on what Putin did. The Russians could stage a demonstration nuclear detonation over the Black Sea or at high-altitude airburst that generates an electromagnetic pulse that fries the electricity infrastructure of any city below. Those actions, however, would cause international outrage with little, if any, effect on the course of the war. The use of nuclear weapons against Ukrainian military targets or a city with the aim of shocking Kiev into surrender or acceptance of partial Russian occupation would result in a far greater transgression. The range of responses in that case would include further sanctions, including secondary sanctions targeting anyone or any 
country buying Russian oil, stepping up arms supplies to Kiev, including longer-ranged missiles and jets the Ukrainians have been demanding, is another option. Actual NATO strikes against Russian military targets in Ukraine would represent a huge leap, turning the conflict into a war between Russia and NATO, something policymakers have spent nearly 80 years trying to prevent. The reaction to nuclear use would be just as important as the nuclear use itself. Mariana Budjerin, Senior Research Associate at the Project on Managing the Atom at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center. If it does force Ukraine into some kind of settlement and the Allies think we're throwing in the towel on this, then it does show that, hey, nuclear arms really do get you what you want, Budjerin said. If nuclear weapons are used and that only makes everyone a lot more upset and hardens the resolve and somehow stops Russia in its tracks, then it's a very different story. I think everyone can agree that when people are speaking non-ironically and non-hyperbolically about nuclear exchanges that we've come to a pretty pass, and indeed we have. And the thing is that the situation in Ukraine is likely to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. Now you might be thinking, Luke, you fool! Ukraine is winning! They're driving the Ruskies out at an increasing rate of speed. Putin is just bluffing because he knows he can't win this war. And if he's not bluffing, it's because he knows he can't win the war but is going for a Pyrrhic victory. Au contraire, mon frère. Russia is committing 300,000 more troops to fight. And the dirty little secret is that Ukraine is running out of American weapons. The weapons most needed and most effective in this war, at least so far, are Javelin missiles, HIMARS rockets, and the 155mm howitzer, and we have depleted our surplus. And that's a bad thing for Ukraine, because the turnaround rate on these weapons is not fast. The Ukrainians, according to CNBC News, have been sent about 8,500 Javelin missiles. We make 800 per year. The U.S. makes about 30,000 155mm howitzer rounds per year. The Ukrainians are going through that in a week. And if the Ukrainians don't have the ability to fight the Russians at range while negating their armor advantage, then this war could become even more devastating than it already is. It could rapidly deteriorate into a stalemate with guerrilla atrocities being ramped up and extending for an extremely long period of time. Fascinatingly, many Ukrainians are willing to negotiate terms, another of the dirty little secrets. Part of the reason that Zelensky hasn't had a more diplomatic tone is because, at least early on in the conflict, the U.S. insisted on only supplying lethal aid, which is Orwellian for highly profitable weaponry. And so what we have is the potential for this disaster to become even more disastrous. A pointless squandering of human life, the waste of trillions of dollars, the ruination of a culture, the disruption of hundreds of millions of lives, that's what this war is. But whatever the situation is right now, it can't last forever. Remember that. The status quo cannot last forever. Why not? Because right now the Russians are driving the Russians back. Eventually, either their momentum will stall out or they'll get to the Russian border or they'll conquer Russia. But at a certain point, the Ukrainians will have to stop gaining territory. Eventually, the rate at which the Ukrainians are using ammunition will have to be scaled back. Even if NATO countries keep giving free ammo to Ukraine, the stockpiles are already depleted, and their replenishment rate is a lot slower than their usage rate, which is a simple fact of modern warfare, and even ballistic warfare. You can fire arrows, and bullets, and rockets, and missiles faster than you can make them. So without a major and extremely expensive and time-consuming ramp-up of production, how will Ukraine's ammo needs be met? And then, what happens? 
Russia has conscripted about 200,000 men with previous military experience already, with the obvious plan for at least some of them to be deployed to Ukraine. How long can the Ukrainians win a conventional war? Nobody knows. How long will the Russians, not named Putin, allow the flower of their youth to be thrown into the maw? Nobody knows. Will Putin use nuclear weapons? Nobody knows. And that's really the point for today. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Nobody knows everything that is happening. And so navigating this conflict is no easy task. You see, there are three kinds of problems, simple, complicated, and complex. Simple problems are problems you can solve by following one set of simple instructions, requiring only one set of skills. So a popular example people give is baking a cake. Baking a cake is a simple problem. That doesn't mean it's easy to bake a cake. It just means that you can follow the instructions perfectly every time. And if you do that, you'll get a cake that's equally perfect, assuming the ingredients are the same quality every time. A complicated problem is similar in that it's a bunch of simple problems lumped together requiring two or more domains of skills to solve the problem. People use the example of sending a rocket into space. Sure, it sounds impossible, but if you break rocketry down into all its discrete parts, it's just a matter of physics, engineering, and aeronautics. But the point is that if you have the adequate skills in each of these domains, you can basically follow a recipe. It's a simple problem on steroids. However, the complex problem is different. The complex problem is not a series of simple problems, but is totally different. There is no recipe for how to solve a complex problem. That's because complex problems are problems that deal with unpredictable elements, or at least elements that aren't perfectly predictable. A common example is raising a child. There is no formula for raising children that is guaranteed to work. You can't break child rearing into a series of discrete steps along the way. Sure, there are, there are many simple and even complicated problems that are part of raising a child. Absolutely. That, that is definitely true. But raising a child, the whole problem of child rearing cannot simply be simplified into a series of predictable and perfectible operations. That's because kids are people with their own wills and personalities and desires. Now, does that mean that complex problems can't be solved? Of course not. People succeed in raising children who are good and godly Christians who love and serve the Lord and are assets to their societies every single day. And it's not merely an accident. There are steps you can take that help you accomplish the goal. But yes, kids go off the rails sometimes. That's why people talk about the black sheep of the family. No matter how well-heeled and blue-blooded and respectable a family, there's almost always a brother or an aunt or a cousin who's a bona fide embarrassment. The apple never fars fall from the tree, but it can roll a tremendous distance and then get eaten by garbage wasps. And what we have in the Ukraine war is a complex situation, not a complicated. What do I mean? Well, what I mean is that the Ukraine war is filled with unknowns and unknown unknowns. There are far too many issues at stake that are not formulaic. There are too many human elements that are unpredictable, that knowing how to navigate this war is not simply a matter of having people with the best technical and strategic expertise to tell people where to point their guns. It's not as simple as apply bullets here, 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 and here. And this is a problem for the United States and the West more broadly. It's a problem that's been on the horizons for some time and which now is really beginning to show how serious it is. It's the problem of folly. It's the problem of incompetence. It's the problem of technocracy. Put simply, the West thought that it could substitute technical expertise for wisdom. And now we're learning to our sorrow that only a fool thinks that there's a substitute for wisdom.
I'd like to quote uh, from Professor Georgia Warnke in her excellent work on 20th century philosopher Hans-Georg Gadamer. She says, Indeed, Gadamer argues that the expert has replaced the man of practical wisdom. Social decisions are not the result of reasoned discussions in an informed public sphere, but instead of small groups of experts who have mastered a great deal of technical information and therefore claim to be able to act in the name of everyone else. Gadamer argues that such a society of experts is also a society of functionaries. What becomes important is not the capacity to make responsible decisions on one's own, but rather the willingness to adapt to decisions others have made for one decisions that, in addition, largely follow the logic of technological imperatives. The course of technological and scientific advance is no longer guided by public consensus on aims and goals. Rather, the reverse is the case. Goals and purposes are themselves dictated by technological demands and possibilities. Human beings are thus threatened, on Gadamer's view, with the loss of identity. Their actions are not the actions of responsible citizens, but those of cogs in a machine, the point of which is to assure the continued smooth functioning of the scientific, technical, economic apparatus. The effect of this reversal of the roles of practical moral deliberation and scientific technical reason, however, is an increase in social irrationality that Gadamer thinks goes a long way towards explaining such phenomena as the final solution and the nuclear arms race. In case that was too much techno-jargon, let me clarify Dr. Warnke's point. Gadamer, a German philosopher who lived from 1900 to 2002, was worried, deeply worried about this trend in society to replace men of wisdom with experts. And the painful and bitter reality is that we have almost endless amounts of evidence that technocracy doesn't work. Being good at solving complicated problems does not qualify one to solve complex problems. We've all met people who were extremely intelligent but had no practical knowledge. When I was a kid, we called it book smarts and street smarts. We know that being good at spreadsheets doesn't mean you can be trusted to watch kids. We know that knowing how to program computers doesn't mean you're practical. Being a doctor doesn't mean you know how to do what is right. We know this. And yet we keep giving power to people who are fools with MDs and JDs and PhDs. Part of the problem is that we have so few people of real wisdom, because real wisdom is hard to cultivate. It takes decades and needs to be started from infancy to be most potent. Our society is facing hard problems that we can't solve. Because we've chosen expertise over wisdom. We desire technical acumen rather than sagacity. And we will have to pay a price for this. The word of God says you can only despise wisdom for so long before you need her. And when you need her, it'll be too late. Now let's pray that it's not too late. Let's pray that God will grant wisdom. Let's pray that parents will raise up a generation of wise young men and women and that God will help us to find leaders with wisdom to guide us. Because we need it. We know that the technocrats can't do it. We know that the experts will disappoint us. We need men of wisdom. We need men of wisdom. And so let's pray. God, grant this nation people of wisdom so that they can lead us out of this morass that we're in. I hope and pray we will, and I hope you'll join us again next time for another episode of Truth in Journalism. Thank you, and may God bless your day to his glory.